Where I want to go tonight, I want to speak to the issues of what we're here for. We're here for an ordination. You guys have been in the ministry for a long time. But you're right. Tonight, a mantle's going to fall on you. Something's going to happen inside of you. I was so totally unprepared for that when I was ordained. I was just going to be ordained. And I was so totally unprepared for the weight of the Spirit of the Lord that fell on my shoulders and it's never lifted since. Get ready for something. You guys are going to get, you're going to get something you didn't really anticipate tonight. But I want to speak to the issues of leadership. And then I want to specifically hone in on the book of Titus. There are two places in Scripture where it lays out what an overseer or an elder's responsibilities are. And I want you, this congregation, family, and friends, to know what those are as we ordain them into this office tonight. One of those is in First Timothy, the other one is in Titus, and I've chosen my text tonight from the book of Titus. But I want to just set the stage for that because I don't want to talk all night. Leadership qualities are different in the church than they are in corporate world. And we've tried to bring the corporate model of leadership into the church and it's not working. It doesn't work because God does things differently. So the examples of spiritual leadership would be that secular leadership is often a role. It's a definition. It's what we've been cast into that we're required to do. But spiritual leadership is a relationship. It's wrapping our arms about around someone and going into community with them. Secular leadership exercises authority. It's a top-down, I'm going to tell you what to do. The spiritual leadership comes along and grabs somebody that's the most unlikely person in the whole world, and you just grab them and encourage them and lift them up and watch God transform them into a place that they never thought they could be, and neither did anyone else. Yeah. If you don't believe that, just look at the apostles. Jesus just put together a ragtag team of people and they changed the world. Secular leadership is overcoming competition. Spiritual leadership is obedience to God. We're not in competition. That's why it's neat to have other pastors here. We're not competing. This is God's kingdom and these are God's sheep. Somebody said, you're stealing my sheep. I said, not your sheep. It's God's pasture. They just choose to graze wherever they want to graze. Secular leadership criteria is how do they lead? Wow, spiritual leadership criteria, and I'll park there a little bit tonight, is how do we live? That's the key. Secular leadership is often the position that we hold, and spiritual leadership is the disposition that we carry with us as we relate to other people. Secular leadership ends. Spiritual leadership goes forever. Isn't that awesome? Even Jesus brought us an upside-down model of leadership. And it's hard to get our arms around this sometimes. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. In my weakness, I'm made strong, Paul said. I boast in my weakness, he said on another occasion. Jesus said, if I want to be first, I have to be last. And we want to be first. And then he went on to say the hardest part, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. I'll never forget. I wish I'd have never turned on the television. It was on a Sunday morning in San Jose, California, I think. And I woke up early and I turned the television on and there was a pastor preaching. And he said something like, he is the head of our families, want to be served by our wives as the groom. But it was the groom, Jesus, who 
put the towel around his waist and put water in a basin and wash the disciple, the bride's feet. And he said that we as the grooms are to serve our wives. Wow. And if we want to be great in the kingdom, we have to understand this thing that it's, we didn't come to be waited on. Jesus didn't come for to be served. He said that he came to serve. That's what he came for. And when we get that down, then we understand leadership. We understand what God is asking of us. And then there's John Maxwell, and I love this saying he has, if you think you're a leader, no one's following, you're just out for a walk. <laughs> Look back behind you. Leadership means that there's something about you that God has empowered you for other people to follow you. So I want to talk tonight about qualities necessary for an effective elder leadership. But before I go into the text in Titus, I want to park here because most of you don't know what our ministry is, but our ministry is a ministry to pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders around the world when they get in trouble, when they're burned out, when their marriages are upside down. It could be moral failure. It could be that their family is in crisis or they're in trouble and, and conflict in their present leadership and ministry assignment. And when they go upside down, we get them. We have retreat centers in France and in Southeast Asia and Israel and Canada and Michigan and here, and we're opening one in Switzerland and Tennessee. And so there's, the needs are much greater than maybe you could ever imagine because when a leader gets in trouble, who do they talk to? And on day one, we ask them, tell us your story. We have a lot of time. Tell us your story. It's a five-day intensive residential retreat that they come to one of our retreat centers and God does some incredible things in their lives. But the first thing we talk about is this, the first thing. You guys have heard this from me already. I want to remind you, and I want to let you be exposed to it. And that's our system of priorities that God put in place for us. And the first thing that we go upside down on is the very first thing that God says is the most important thing in our lives. And that's a relationship with Him. That's falling in love with Jesus. You know, I used to, I, I hate the word spiritual discipline because it's checking off in the morning that I read the Word. It's checking off that I spent time with the Lord. I get up every morning and I walk down, I have a big chair, I turn the light on, I get my iPad and a cup of coffee and I sit with the Lord for a couple of hours. And it's, I used to check it off because I felt guilty if I didn't do it. And now if I can't get to it, I don't feel guilty anymore. I just miss it. I just miss it. It's my relationship with them. I'll never forget Mother Teresa. Remember her? Mother Teresa was a woman of prayer. And she was being interviewed on Larry King Live one night. And Larry King asked her, what do you say to God when you pray? And she said, I don't say anything. And he said, what does God say to you? And she said, he didn't say anything. He just listens. And if you don't believe that, if you don't understand that, you don't understand prayer. Because this is the kind of prayer where we sit in His presence. Where He's not a Santa Claus at a drive-up. So we drive up in the morning and say, God, I want this, 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 and this, and thank You for giving it to me, and you drive off. But this is sitting with Him. This is not what we do for the Lord. And it's so easy to get caught up in the ministry. The thing we hear the most from every leader that comes to us as ministry has taken over our world. It's a common theme. And when ministry takes over our world, we become human doers and not human beings. And we've lost this sense of just being with the Lord and just sitting with Him. Because what we do for Him is not our relationship with Him. 
The first assignment we give a leader is we say we want you to go apart this afternoon and we want you to spend 45 minutes to an hour just alone with the Lord. No Bible, no music. A pad and a pencil. They look at us like you're crazy. What are we supposed to do? Minds racing because it's hard to quiet our minds because we have undisciplined minds. And we, it's hard to quiet them enough. And by the end of the week, they're so treasured time. They say, I'll never let this go again because it's setting with the Master. And it, if we don't know how to set with the Master, we're never going to be a leader in God's kingdom because we don't know who we serve. I better put that up there so I figure out when I'm over time. The second, and I'm going to hit these fast and come back and defend them real quick and then move past them. My wife's next. My wife is next. I just heard that from you. My, the call of God does not come before my wife. My wife is first. And then come my children if I have children living at home. Not adult children, but children living at home. And then then my service to God. And then my extended family and friends. And then if I have a job, work comes. And it looks like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It goes like you'll have no other gods before me and anything we put in front of Him, if it's my wife, it's my job, it's my ministry, it's idolatry, any way you look at it. Then He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Wow, what a promise. doesn't say seek all these things and after a while God will come in. I like what Blackaby says. Henry Blackaby says, don't start something and invite God to come over and join you. Find out where He's moving. Get in the stream of where He's already moving and go with what He's doing already. See, that's not putting something ahead of Him. That's joining Him. Scripture says, for this reason, what reason? I've done as many as 50 weddings in a year. You always say, for this cause, for this reason, shall a man leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. Well, you know, this was written. This reason was Adam named all the animals, and there wasn't a suitable helper found for him. So God put him to sleep, took his rib, made this beautiful person called a woman. He made his famous speech, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And uh, then the Scripture says, for this cause. Shall a man leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two of them should be like Adam, I think. When I married my wife, I got my rib back. God put us together. And when He put us together, I can't lift my head off and put something in here. I can't take my arm off and put something in. I truly became one flesh with her. And if I became one flesh with her, nothing can come in front of her. There's a scripture, because I speak a lot around the world. We've spoken, I think, in 20 countries now. And... And because you do that, the King James Version of the Bible is used a lot around the world. Those of you that speak around the world, I probably run into the same thing. But the King James Version is used a lot. And there's a scripture in there in Mark 10.29 and Matthew 19.29. They're basically the same. And they say, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wives. See that word wife? Or children or lands for my name's sake shall it receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Mark, don't you ever... Don't you ever put ministry in front of your wife. Don't you ever do that. No matter how tempting it gets, don't ever put ministry in front of him. No no matter how tempting, no matter how big and exciting and crazy it gets. Because what I get from around the world is that because of this scripture, 
I have permission and maybe even instruction that I'm to leave my wife behind in order to do ministry. But go to the interlinear New Testament. You see that word wife that's got the red circle around it? Can you see past me up there? There's no Greek word above it. Instead, there's an annotation underneath it that says 9999. That takes you to Strong's Concordance and it says the word was added by the translators for better readability in the English. There is no actual word in the Greek text. I have no mandate to leave my wife. My wife knows that we run a ministry that's growing and the demands on our relationship can get unbearable at times. But she knows if she came to me and said, we're not going to make it if we stay in this ministry, she knows I'd either hand it off her or close it because I'm going to live this. See, there's a difference in giving mental assent to this and living this. I had people sit across from me and say, I believe that. And I look at them and say, you don't believe it for a second. Because what we believe, we do. Otherwise, we just say it's a great idea. And what God does in this is, and what we say to people is, God has an order for our lives. And we can, we can meet with people and we can work in their lives, but if they're not willing to bring God's order in their life, that we will take the fabric of everything else that we talk about and wrap around that structure and that order. If we're not willing to do that, we're only going to deal in symptoms. And somebody said one time that we can spend all of our time putting out little fires when we have a big fire raging out of control. We put the big fire out, the little ones go out on their own. That's the big fire. We put out a lot of little fires, but if we can get our lives into this structure, and that's not just for ministry, by the way, that's for all of us. Even Paul, you know, in a backhanded sort of way, when he had eh, kind of a dim view sometimes, I think, on marriage, but anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it kind of leaks out. Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. He's just making a statement. We have to take care of both sides. We take care of our wives, and we take care of the affairs of, of God's affairs as well. And the same thing for a woman. Gary Thomas says that if you want to serve God, stay single. If you want to really know God, get married because it will drive you to Him. <laughs> Next is our children. You see, if, if I'm spending time with the Lord and I'm going to that well of water that just gets full and I, I can dip from it at any time, the splash of that well is going to splash over into my relationship with my wife. And when that gets full, it's going to splash over to my children. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters, father, mother, or children. Suggesting that we need to leave our children. That's why I believe it's only minor children in our home. And I will take issue, and I may step on some toes, sorry. I take issue with missionaries who leave their children in a boarding school. I do. Because the scripture says... Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And if they're not present and you're not present, you can't do this. I believe that when our children are young, we're to be with them. And we're to teach them. 
I believe that the pastor of the church is not the spiritual head of the family. I believe that the husband is the spiritual head of the family. And the father's responsibility is to teach his children. I love what our grandson said. Our son was a prodigal years ago. And wow, I could tell you stories all night long about that. He's an incredible young man now. And you'd never know he's the same guy. And teaches the word, runs deep with the Lord. And his 16 and a half year old son told me this. I said, Tyler, you're now the senior pastor of your church. What would you do different? He had some great ideas as a 16 and a half year old. And it was more involvement. You know, he said he didn't like people doing this, standing up and talking to you. He wanted to be involved. And they said, why? He said, because we know what we believe before we go to church. We want to go and discuss it with other people who know what they believe. And I thought, wow, look at our son go. Taught his son as the spiritual head of his home. He taught your children. When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Oh, I have to go here. Numbers chapter 30. Let me give you that real fast. You may have never read that, that chapter. If you haven't, grab your Bible. Not right now. Grab your Bible. When you get out of here, read it. Because I learned something really special. It says in there that as the father to my daughter, that if she makes a vow that is a bad vow, I'm never going to trust a man ever again. I'm never, whatever it is that she gets hurt and she makes a vow, it says, when I find out about it as her father, I have a choice. When I hear it, I can either affirm it or I can refute it, I can kill it, I can make it of no avail. If I do nothing, the Scripture says it stands in the heavenlies. That's powerful. The minute I found that out, I went to our daughter. She was older, and I said, Wow, look what I got. And it wasn't long after that we were at Pike's Market in Seattle, and she said, Dad, come here. I just made a vow. And I said, What's that? She said, I just said I'll never marry a man in the military. She'd gotten kind of beat up on that deal. And I said, Sissy, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. I won't allow it to stand in your future. She said, Now I'm going to restate it. I would prefer not to. <laughs> But then, I've, then I read the rest of the chapter. And the rest of the chapter says, if I don't do it, if my father-in-law didn't do that for my wife, that when I hear about any vow my wife has made in her entire life that's a negative vow, if I hear about it, I have the same privilege. Not only with my daughter, but with my wife. I have a privilege and an obligation to break those vows. So I said to my wife, I said, sweetheart, I want you to go dig them all up. She took a whole year. She wrote them all down. We were with these guys out at Lake Powell. We went out on the edge of a little, a little area. She said, do I have to read these? I said, I didn't write it. It said, when I hear them. And one at a time, she told me what they were. And I said, I rebuke those in the name of Jesus. I will not allow them to stand in your future. It transformed her. If she were sta standing here tonight, she would tell you that. We have these incredible responsibilities. And then, only then are we qualified. So that splash coming to us. Then uninhibited, unconflicted, we can stand before the church of God and do ministry. Scripture says he must manage his own family well. If anyone not, does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? I don't even like that scripture, but I didn't write it. I'm just the delivery guy. <laughs> then extended family and friends. Now it says we have to leave our brothers or sisters, our mother and father. That's to go do ministry. That's okay. It's all right if we leave them. 
because ministry comes ahead of them and then the last one is work. And work's not unimportant, but it was never designed to give us our sense of value and our sense of worth. It was designed for us to make a living. That's what it was. But we have an enemy that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he looks at it like this. He sends us out to our jobs and we become workaholics. It takes all of our time. We get all burned out. Give everything to that we can. Then we go to our buddies or we go to our families, extended families, and we spend time there. And then we go to the church and sometimes we as pastors aren't too great. We beat you up and tell you to do all kinds of stuff and we should be telling you to stop. And then our children get the leftovers, our spouses get nothing, and the very thing that was to be the wellspring of our life and our relationship, there's no time for a relationship with God. So I charge you, I charge you, never stop falling in love with Jesus. Never stop spending time with Him. Never stop having that vibrant place. Those of you that are pastors in here, you too, don't ever stop that place. Don't ever forget that your wife or your husband comes first. Don't ever forget that. Not too long ago, we were at the AACC conference, American Association of Christian Counselors, and I had just sat in on a session, and I said to my wife as we walked across the grounds of the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, I said, sweetheart, I don't want a business partner for a wife. We do ministry together. I said, I don't want that. Because when we drive down the road, we talk about ministry. We lay in bed, we talk about ministry. And if it's not careful, we think we have a good relationship when all it is is ministry. And it's so easy for that to take over, whether it's ministry, whether it's your kids, or whether it's your work or what it is. And then then we teach our children. We love our children. We have them in our home. And our kids know that they come before ministry. Because... We're the people that hear the tragedies of when kids don't come before ministry. And their parents spend their whole lives telling them why they have to go do something else and they can't be a part of their lives. And how they have to do this and that and something else because the whole world's watching them. When our son was a prodigal, I watched as he introduced his obviously pregnant girlfriend at a hallelujah night, an alternative to Halloween. I was a pastor. And our kids, when they get there, our kids have to know they're more important than ministry. But it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. They've got to know that you love them and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And if we can't get there, we've got some work to do because they're next Amen. before ministry. And then our extended family and friends in our work. I just wanted to lay that out. Can't have any more wives. Titus 1, 6 through 2.15 is where we're just going to hit just for a moment. Elder must be the husband of one wife. That's not too tough. Keeps us together. The Bible says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. We find a wife. Wow. But they're, wives, there's some issues for you too because it says a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. And better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And the wife must respect her husband. It goes both ways here. Second is a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. We just talked a bit about that. In fact, one of the most important things with our children is to train up our children the way they should go. 
I said to our kids and my wife, I said, I have one responsibility, and that's to take you to heaven. That's it. That's all I have. They're more important than you. And I've told them that my whole, their, their whole lives, that that's the only job I have is to take them to heaven. And I don't care what they do. I don't care how the kids have acted out. I don't care. I'll still pour into them. And then you get into that whole thing of, are you managing your household well? And then you watch God when you love your kids unconditionally and you don't get embarrassed about them to the rest of the world and you don't try to hide them. And when you actively show that you accept them and they are not their behavior, they're who they are to you. And you watch God work in their lives and you watch at the end of the day, in the end of the journey, how God did something wonderful in their lives because you understood where they were in the priority structure. Number three, you must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered. I want to camp to the quick-tempered for a second. It's real easy to get anger in this thing. And I put a little chart up here. I want you to take a look at it. These are all negative emotions. And it's easy for us to, when we're sad, we're taught as kids that you can't be sad because if you're sad, just buck up, especially a little boy if he cries. Do you remember when... John Kennedy was assassinated, for those of you that are old enough to remember that, or saw the picture of his little boy standing at attention as the caisson went by to Arlington Cemetery. That picture went around the world as a little boy that bucked up. If he'd have been crying and sobbing on the edge of the curb, the picture probably would not have been taken. But we're said, don't, don't do that. We're afraid. Buck up. What do you mean you're afraid? Be a man. If you're embarrassed, stop that sniveling. Quit your crying. Frustration, hurt all go the same way. And we learn as men, the only thing we can do is have anger. And then, if we're sad, it goes to anger. If it's fear, it goes to anger. All of these have a relay switch that take us to anger. And then this blast comes out. Whether it comes out at our spouse or whether it comes out at our congregants, whether it comes out at our children. But that blast of anger comes out and we don't even know what it was that happened to us. Because somewhere along the line, all of those holes got stopped up that you can see up there. Those little purple squares. And we learned that we can't feel those emotions. But I want to tell you, those are our emotions. God gave them to us. They gave them to our children. And we have to go back as even adults and figure out how to feel them and open those back up again. So that we don't let it all come in. And it all becomes anger that we blow out at someone else. And ladies, you... Learned that anger wasn't okay for you, but you could cry. Many of you, some of you know. But my wife was climbing the corporate ladder and was in the, the corporate world, and she'd go into high-level meetings. Somebody would make her mad, and she'd cry. And that'd make her madder, and she'd cry even more. And we look at our wives and say, can't you just stop that crying? We don't, we don't know what to do with crying women. That, and you don't even know what's wrong, because you learned that you can't feel these things any more than we can. And all you know how to do is cry whenever negative emotions come. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man, patience in ministry is its a virtue. We've got to have patience in ministry. Better a patient man than a warrior, and every man wants to be a warrior. A man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. It's to a man's honor to avoid strife, but a fool... None of us want to be that. Just quick to, I'll say, pick a quarrel. A hot-tempered man must pay the penalty, and if you rescue him, you'll just have to do it again. Let him have the consequences. Everyone, wow, should be quick to listen, 
slow to speak and slow to become angry. But we're quick to speak, quick to become angry, and slow to listen so often. But the people who just sit back and hear it all out first, slow to speak, and let their anger, if it's there, be appropriate. Number four, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Some job description, huh? Not drunkenness, not violent. Honest, hospitable, loves good things. Has the fruit of the Spirit. The last one on the end is self-control. Holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Study, study to show yourself approved. Under God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dig in the word, study the word, know the word, know what you believe and know why you believe it and be prepared to defend it, the scripture says. They told us when we, I spend three months a year in Israel and we work with leaders in Israel and so people said to us, if you don't know the word and you go to Israel, they'll chew you up and spit you out for lunch. And that's probably the truth because those people know the word they know it inside out and backwards and so far i've been okay but you got to know the word that's the lamp into our feet it's a light into our path and it's that road map that tells us where to go you're going to have to deal with older men older than you because the scripture says you have to teach older men to be temperate worthy of respect self-controlled and you can't teach self-control if you don't have it Sound in faith. And if you don't know what you believe, you can't do that in love and in endurance. And likewise, maybe your task to teach the older women. It's interesting. Five times in Scripture, we're instructed to love our wives. Never once, ladies, are you instructed to love us. You're instructed to respect us, but never once to love us. But it says, teach older women that they can teach younger women how to love their husbands comes natural for us. No, <laughs> no, we're instructed. We're ordered to do it. But it says at some point along the line, ladies, you might need to be taught. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands. Also to be self-controlled. Pure. To be busy at home. To be kind. To be subject to their husbands. Oh, man, we get to that submission thing again. No one will malign the Word of God. Number eight. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Just not the old one, not the young ones. That goes all the way through, self-control. And number nine, we're going to park here for a moment. In everything, set them an example by doing what, in, what is good. In your teaching, show integrity. Seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing to say about us. The entire resources of the kingdom... The searchlight and the most powerful microscope of the kingdom was placed on the life of Daniel. And they said they couldn't find any blemish on him, any wrongdoing, any crack in his character, any, any blemish across his life of integrity. The only thing that he did was serve his God. That's the only thing they could find wrong with him. Was he prayed to his God when he was told not to. Can you imagine having the resources of the IRS or whoever... Homeland Security, uh, come and 
focus on you like that and not find anything wrong? Wow. He said to show integrity so that no one can have any avenue, any crack to come against us. So why do we need integrity? I want to talk about it just for a second because this is what do we do when nobody's looking? I kind of had a little experience with this. I'll share just quickly. We were in the island of Maui in Hawaii. It was after dark. Our daughter was with us. She was 16. And I knew So I went. I, they said down the street. And I went. And I was walking back. And there was a little shop that opened to the sidewalk. And I like postcards. I stopped and looked at the postcards. But behind it were calendars. And it was the girls of Hawaii. I flipped one over. And I looked at all the girls of Hawaii. And put it back on the, on the thing there. The holder. And. Went back to where I left my wife and daughter, and they came up a little bit flushed and out of breath. And I said, where you been? And our daughter said, following you. She said, we saw you looking at the girls of Hawaii, Dad. <laughs> and sometimes I think if we were somewhere and you ran into me and you said, Pastor Larry, what are you doing here? And I said, following you. What might that mean? See, we care so much more about what people think than we do about what God thinks. Psalm says, why do we need integrity for protection? May integrity and uprightness protect me. Righteousness guards the man of integrity. I know that you're pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Wow, in my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. The man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. What do we do when nobody's looking? What goes on in the private parts of our life? What is it that makes us a public success and a private success rather than a public success and a private failure? I've got to tell you one more story. I'm a storyteller. There was a, this is, I wish this were an object lesson, but it's not. I work with leaders, so my stories are about leaders. Great leaders, beating the drum every day out there, doing wonderful work, but I happen to see the ones that struggle. But this is a, a true story. A pastor in the Marissa Islands and it was a church that had a long, a long aisle like this. And the door was there. And the pastor began preaching in the morning and a morning service. And his wife was noticeably absent. And about halfway through the sermon, she came in the door. And she's got pots and pans and flour and water and stuff in her arms. And she comes walking down, walks around, and there's a communion table behind her, at, behind him. And she puts it down and starts doing stuff, pouring water and mixing flour. And finally turned around and said, what are you doing? She said, I'm moving in. I like this man that's here. He's kind. And he's loving. And he's gracious. And he he doesn't get angry. And he's not selfish. He's giving. I don't like the one at home because he's mean. <laughs> and he gets angry. And he's impatient. And he does all of that. So she says, I'm moving in here. Public success private failure. You can't ever be that. You can't ever be that. And it's so easy to do. Because we don't want to tell anybody. Who do we tell? That's why we're in business. Is because who does the pastor talk to? What do we need? Integrity for a road map. The integrity of the upright guides them. But the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. We need it to emulate Jesus they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity. Ah, what a way to be known. 
What do we need integrity? To be an example to others. And that's what we just read out of Titus. And the qualities of that integrity person, and then I'm going to be wrapping this up. They have to be authentic. The acid test of our character is how we respond to the truth that God brings to us. We have to be real. John Powell, the Jesuit priest, wrote a book, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? Because I can pull down a mask, and if you don't like that one, I can pull down another one. And if you don't like that, I can, but I'll find one that fits you. You'll never know who I am because I can hide behind it. And one of the reasons, I'll come back to that just in a second, one of the reasons why our host in our retreat centers sometimes say when people are in crisis and they come in and they act like nothing's wrong, and then you can hear the door slam and people yelling at each other downstairs. It's because we learn how to be plastic. We learn how to have a mask. The answer to the question is, why am I afraid to tell you who I am? It's because when I lift all the mask, then I have nothing left. That's all I've got for you to see. And that's all of it. We have to be authentic. They have the courage to go against the grain of society and what other people think, bold for the kingdom of God. And the cost of integrity may be high. I don't know if you ever saw this or not. But Peter was crucified upside down. He said, I won't be crucified like my Lord. Andrew was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. John died a natural death after being placed in boiling oil. Philip was stoned. Thomas was shot by a shower of arrows while praying. Matthew was burned to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. Thaddeus was killed by a javelin. Simon crucified. Judas, of course, hanged himself. Bartholomew was beaten to death. Matthias was crucified. And Paul was beheaded. It will cost us something to live lives of integrity. But God asks us, especially as leaders, almost every day of my life, I'm across from a leader who's in crisis. Either I'm across from them or I'm with them on the phone. I've spent hours. I used to be a novice at this. I'm not a novice anymore. I've spent more hours than I can count. And I've heard more pain than I can tell you. And I've heard so deep, I think I can't ever get over it when I sit across from leaders. But it's because we, we stopped understanding the cost. We're not very good cost counters. And those of us who are leaders, we can't ever stop counting the cost. Because sin brings with it consequences that we want no part of. So what does the world need? He needs, the world needs husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church who will model the character of God to their children, who will put character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will, who do not hesitate to risk everything for what is right, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will lead wounded. Sometimes we have to lead wounded, shot full of holes. We can't sit down on the curb and cry and say, if you think you're so hot, you do it. No, the job description is lead. Who will make no compromise with wrong. Husbands who will find the order of Scripture and live in it. Who are true to their friends through good report and evil report and adversity as well as in prosperity. Who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success. Who are not afraid to model the truth of Scripture to their children and live it out so their kids don't see one thing in the pulpit, hear something in a pulpit and see something totally different at home. We can't live like that. Who can say no with emphasis, although all the rest of the world is saying yes. It's a strong commitment to values, the absolute truth. The word is their bond. They do what they say. Wow. Don't compromise. No sensuous glances. No.
sufficient. Somebody said one time, a guy wrote a book called Close Calls. He said, if a person of the opposite sex walks into the room and your, and your emotions change, your demeanor changes, something's wrong already. Doesn't entertain thoughts they shouldn't have. Doesn't violate confidentiality. Sometimes we gossip through prayer requests. <coughs> Willing to be accountable. Plato said in his work, Apology, the life which is unexamined is not worth living. And David said it this way. Search me, O God, every day. Every day, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And the last one. The last. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Paul's admonition to Timothy is never let anyone despise your youth. You can run deep no matter what age you are. Stand in a position of authority that God gives you. Finally, leaders have vision. They die with their hands grasping for the future. Scripture says, without a vision, my people perish. The last piece of that is, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a guy in a choir where I was on staff. He was an old guy, 70-something years old. His name was John Gilly, and he wore a lime green coat white guy in an almost all black choir had absolutely no rhythm (laughs) just like this no matter what was going on John got cancer I went to see him in the hospice he told me I've been a mean man I don't think God I'm scared I'm scared to go in and I assured him the grace of God in his life he wanted to try to still get well and said John you're on a collision course I said can you trust the guy that brought you this far to take you home. And his trademark kind of expression was, I believe I can. They said that when he died, he looked past everybody else into the kingdom. Smile on his face. God walked him in. They went to his home. He had been sick for two years with cancer. They went to his home and they found his little book in this little trailer house that he had. And he had goals written for the next five years. Grasping vision. doesn't matter where we are. If we don't have a vision, we're going to perish. God put us in a place. God plants vision in the leader. He plants it in you. And it's your job to protect it. It's everybody else's job to help you fulfill it. Father, I thank you for this time that we've spent together here now. Lord, I pray for Mark and Kara today. I pray that you would touch them as pastors, as leaders, Lord, as called by you, set in place as we move into this next part of our service, Lord, to establish them in what you've called them to do. I ask, Lord, that you prepare their hearts to receive what you're to give them now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Uh, I want to throw a little bit of information out. Uh, uh, not only is Pastor Larry the guy that brought me to Colorado, but also hired Kara, where we ended up meeting, falling in love, and got married. And then guess guess where our premarital ministry was from? Yeah. So uh, we, um, Kara and I, we believe we have just an awesome marriage. And uh, we thank you and Lori for the seeds that you planted uh, for the last 15-plus years. Um, so we've been getting that for 15 years. Isn't that good? 
That's awesome. Um, I asked Tyron if he would um, lead in the ordination of which Pastor Larry would be a part of, and, and Tyron will, uh, I assume, call the team forth, but the team kind of come up, and, um, and so I'm just going to surrender it to him right now. One thing that was very important to Karen and I in this service, uh, we wanted to honor Pastor Larry and Shepherd's Heart Ministry, and we wanted to honor, uh, honor uh, Tyron and New Covenant Ministries International. We are so thankful to be under those coverings and serving our king together with them. So come on up, Tyron. Uh, everyone, let's, let's welcome Tyron up here. Thank you very much. Good evening. It is a real privilege for us to be here and uh, to hear some of that great, great truth. How many of you wish you were me now, having this privilege to follow that? Good truth sets us free, but it's deep. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to rush on from it. I really do believe God has spoken this evening. And how many of you are grateful God is a God that speaks? He's not silent. He cares. He's in the detail. And God has spoken, sure, to them, but also to us. And we really do want to heed to what He's already said. But for us, it's a real privilege just to be here, to be friends with this wonderful couple and this church. We've uh, really enjoyed getting to know you guys and coming into this church and partnering with you. We're very grateful that God has brought you into our lives. And we love this church. We really do feel like it's a real part of what God's called us to do, just the partnership and the friendship. So we thank you. And uh, we just love having the friendship. And even being here and meeting some of these new people is great. Um, And we, we are excited about what God's doing, not just with you, but with this church. And while we're recognizing this evening there's an ordination, well, it's not, it's induction. This has already happened. They've already been ordained. Uh, What we're doing this evening is simply, I guess, recognizing what's already happened in heaven, uh, but also just making it public and setting in order this evening uh, something. We believe that there's going to be real change in this church. We believe there is impartation. As was said, we do believe things will take place this evening. But before we go there, I just want to share a couple of things with you as a local church. And again, I'm not going to preach. We've had a great preach this evening. But I do think there is something that in these times that we as the local church will respond as well. Not just, wow, that's great. We've got cool leaders. Thank God for them. We'll pray for them. But actually, God, you've put us here together to partner with these guys. And I really want to commend you. uh, While we're honoring this, while we're recognizing what God's doing, I want to commend you who call this home uh, for being part of this church. We know that it's not always easy to be a part of a church that is sold out to the kingdom, that is willing to walk in the bigness of what God's called them, willing to oppose the culture and walk in the bigness of the kingdom and not just walk in what pleases the culture around us. And it's not easy to be a part of that church uh, that sticks true to the Word of God. These guys love the Word of God. I know that. And uh, they're sticking to it, and they want to build accordingly. And I want to commend you for that. And as I've been praying for this church, and I know that I've preached here before, I'm not sure if I've shared these scriptures. I think I have, but I, I keep getting the same sense of what God is saying to this church. And if you have a Bible, just quickly, I want to just share to this church. I'm just going to read a scripture, make a couple of comments, and then we're going to do the induction. All right? Is that cool? You're okay with that? Can handle a little more? Is that all right? Mark said, I can take as long as I want. And you need to be careful because I, uh, don't worry, we have a meeting in the morning, so we won't go too late. Isaiah 58, if you don't mind. Just 
Just two verses in Isaiah 58. And, and I have... It's one of the texts that God has really ministered to myself and Nicole. And uh, certainly in the church plant that we've just been involved in here in, uh, in Colorado. But also when we're leading a church in Australia. And also it's just God. It's one of those truths that God has really stirred me to believe for. And I, I believe the same for this church, Mark. I've said that to you guys. I've preached, I'm sure, this already here. But Isaiah 58, the, the context is speaking about true fasting. Now relax, we're not going to talk about fasting this evening. But the, the, there are two verses in there that, that really stick out to me of what it is God's called you to and what the promise of God is to this people. How many of you know you want, we need some promise from God? I mean, a lot of people promising a lot of things. But when God promises some things, you know it's for sure it's going to happen because it's impossible for God to lie. This is not a good idea, friends. This is a God thing. You've given your life to something God is doing. I love what was said that you're not here doing your thing. You're here doing what God's already doing. You're partnering with Him in this great, great role. In Isaiah 58, verse 11, it says this. I want to just read it over, prophesy it over you if I can. It says that the Lord will guide you always. Don't you love that? I mean, we could just stop there and spend a couple of hours, could we not? And the Lord will guide you always. Let me say that to you. I believe that that is part of God's plan. And for you... It's a recognition. I know you have a testimony already of that, but I believe that is the call of God. He wants to guide this church. Impact Rock Church. He will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Isn't that wonderful? He wants to satisfy us. And we heard already, it's not going to come from ministry. It's not going to come from the work we do. It's going to come from this great God that we serve. He wants to satisfy our needs in a sun-scorched land. And will strengthen your frame. And it says, you'll be like a well-watered garden. Like a spring whose waters never fail. Now we've had some dry seasons here, have we not? I mean, when I first moved to Colorado, it was green, green, green. It's not that green anymore. Why? Because we haven't had a lot of rain. I hear about this, this uh, there's no rain and drought and the worst drought. You look around, it's not that green anymore. But there is something about when there's rain... It begins, it becomes green again and the, the vegetation changes again. And it's attractive. And God's promise is this. I want to guide you. I'm going to provide for you. But also this thing is you will be like a well-watered garden. Isn't that awesome? Not just a building, a people. God's put you here to be like a well-watered garden. And then it says, like a spring whose waters never fail. And then he goes on and he says, and your people, here's a job to do, friends. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the old age foundations and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. That's why God's put you here. To be called that means you've got to do that. And that's what I believe part of the, the, the call of this congregation, this church, your future it requires you to be repairers of broken walls and restorers of streets with dwellings. Isn't that exciting? That's what you've been called to. That's what we've been called to. And I do believe even in this evening, God's wanting to remind this church. The other, the other uh, text that I had for you guys, and again, I'm not going to read it. I'll just, I'll just share it with you. It, it might seem like an odd text. And it, Again, it's one of those texts that has challenged me to the core of my being in, in, in the Bible. It's one of those, I wish I could just pull out a scripture, delete it, and make sure I never want to hear about it again, because I misunderstood the context. But I do believe Genesis 22 is a context that, that is a truth for this evening, 
for this local church. And Genesis 22 is the story, as you know, of Abraham putting his son on the altar. Now, I don't believe in anything that God's putting anything on the altar. None of that stuff this evening. What I want to use is, is actually God's provision. And in Genesis 22, it says that, uh, that God spoke to, to, uh, to, to Abraham and he told Abraham to take his son, his only son, his provision, and go and put him on the altar and offer him as a sacrifice to the Father. And so it says early the next morning, incredible, early the next morning, Abraham gets up, he saddles his donkey, and he heads off to the place that God told him to go to, to go and sacrifice his son on the altar. Now, I mean, I want to tell you, friends, when I hear a story like that, I think, what kind of God would ask of that? Why would you do that, God? That's your promise. That's the inheritance you promised. He waited for it. You provided. Now you want to take it. But actually, friends, if you understand the context, that, that God did not necessarily need Abraham to do this. Abraham needed to do this. And the reason he needed to do this is because he needed to see God's provision again. And so did Isaac need to see God provide that God will be there even when Abraham's no longer there. Does that make sense? And so what happens is he takes off and he does exactly. And I, I love the context or the, what it says when it says when he reached the place that God told him to go to, he stopped there, he left his servants down the hill and he went up the mountain, just him and his son, to do what God told him to do. When he got up there, it says that he built the altar. His son said to him, Dad, this is great. We, we've got everything except the most important thing. Where's the ram for this? And Abraham looked at his son and he said, On the mountain of the Lord, God will provide for us. Don't worry about it. God will make a way. Isn't it amazing? He didn't say, You're it. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't do that. But he just, he didn't say, I'm going to make a plan, boy, don't worry. He said, God will provide. And so when they get onto the top of the mountain, they get there, they set up the whole uh, altar and everything, and then next thing is he puts his son on the altar, binds him up, and he's ready to take him out and kill his son. And the Lord says, don't, stop, stop. And it says that the Lord said, now I see that you're committed to this thing. And it looks, he says he looks up, and in the thicket there he saw a ram. And he took the ram, and he slaughtered the ram, and they came down from their mountain. And I say, what, what does that mean for us? Well, here's what I believe for this wonderful church. I believe that God's promise is for you, that He will always provide for you the days of your life. It says on the mountain of the Lord, He will provide for you all the days of your life. And I do believe there is a provision from God that is a promise to you, but it's not whenever you want it, wherever you want it. It's where you go in obedience to the place God's called you to go to, and when you do on that mountain what God's called you to do. I listen to people saying, God promised me, God promised me, therefore that's good enough. Friends, I believe that if Abraham went to any other mountain, there would have been no ram in the thicket. Why? Because he went to the exact place where God told him to go, and he did on that mountain exactly what God told him to do. And when he did exactly what he was told to do, in the place he was supposed to be, God provided a ram in the thicket. And I believe for this congregation, for this people, God's committed to people, not to buildings and projects, to people. God's promise to you and to you and to this church is this. If you stay at the place of His mountain, if you move when God moves, if you go where God's called you to go, and you do on that mountain what it is He's called you to do, you stay true to the call. My conviction, I believe, is this. God's promise to you is you will always have a ram in the thicket. 
There will always be the provision of God. That's not just money, guys. Let's not limit God's provision to finances. It's everything you need to get the job done that God's called this congregation to be repairers of broken walls and restorers of streets with dwellings. All that is needed for that, my friends, is wrapped up in the provision of God, the ram. But it has to be in His place of assignment where God has called you to be. Isn't that awesome? Now that's a challenge, but it's fantastic if you're living where God's called you to live and you're doing what God has called you to do. And I believe that is the call of this church. And I want to encourage you with that. So now, on His mountain, doing His thing, He will always have provision for you. Walk in that, believe in that. Don't be limited by what you see, by what the people in the room, this God who we serve. It's no longer business as usual in this church. We can't do with, well, this is all we have. God says, that's right, but I have. We can't, we're not going to reach this place. We're not going to impact and change this place by simply doing what we have in our hands. It's what He's got in His hands that He's releasing to us. Is that, is that cool? Alright, so anyway, that's just to encourage you. I hope you are a little bit encouraged by that. Anyway, back to this induction. This is not an ordination. This is an induction. And a setting in order, in a sense, before you guys, for these wonderful people. And I just want to read the scripture to you. And we'll get you up in a moment. Get the team guys up as well. We're going to lay hands on you and trust for real prophetic impartation as well. And for some good things to take place this evening. But you made reference to this. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And I just want to read this for us. But as a challenge to you, if I can. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 1. It says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instructions. So part of our call is to preach the Word. Not a word, not some good truth. The Word of God is what we're called to. To be prepared in season and out of season. And also, part of ministering, part of leading, part of pastoring means we have to correct. means we have to rebuke. But many people like that part of it. I like being a corrector and a rebuker. But he also goes on and says, and encourage. And then there's the hardest of all, with great patience. We've heard some of that tonight already. But I want to encourage you, Mark. I know that you love people. And Carol, I know that you guys are incredible pastors. You love people. But because you love them, you've got to correct. You've got to encourage. But you've got to have great, great patience. Love them through. Lead them to the incredible inheritance they have with patience but also with careful instruction. Not just any instruction, but careful instruction that comes from God. It says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, and I believe these days are upon us. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Paul addresses that, but then he does this. He says to Timothy, but you, that's going to happen, but you, keep 
your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Then I find it interesting. He says, do the work of an evangelist. It's amazing how many pastors feel, well, gee, now I'm a pastor. My job is to take care of the sheep. Interesting how Paul says, don't neglect the work of an evangelist. Taking care of God's people is certainly part of what it means. We've got to see people getting saved and added to the church, added to the kingdom. And it's not just the people, it's you guys. I want to say to you, do not neglect that gift, in a sense, of being an evangelist. Love the sheep, yes, but love the lost. Amen. Go after the lost. Because that's what God's called. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now we come, as we believe, representative of heaven as it were. We, we're not it. We're part of it. But we don't believe elders lay hands on, on, on elders. We see in Scripture the apostles lay, hand, lay hands and ordain and release and impart because there is such an important need for, for impartation to take place. Not anyone does it. We see in Scripture it's people that they're connected with, people that are recognized. And we come, in a sense, to do that this evening with friends and recognize. And we'll certainly call the other pastors up who can lay hands too. But there is an impartation. There is a, a setting in order tonight. And we don't come with our backing. We come with heaven's backing and the authority that's given from God. And I want to say, friends, leadership, as we heard already this evening, it's a high and holy calling in the, in the kingdom. God is very particular about who He allows, who He chooses, who He calls to lead His people. The people that Jesus purchased with His blood are the people that God is entrusting men and women to lead. He's very particular about who He calls. This wonderful rewards, but there's also awesome responsibilities. It's exciting, yet it's frightening. It is. It's very exciting, but it's incredibly frightening to lead God's people, to see people loved and cared for, potential being fulfilled, but also knowing too much is given much is required. And I believe that this involves local church responsibilities and possibilities. I, 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 when I think of an elder, I think of three things. I think an elder, first and foremost, can I say this, in this order, needs to guard the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I know that people might argue with me and say, well, what about the sheep? It's in there. But let me tell you this. I'm convinced God has called pastors first and foremost, to guard the gospel of the kingdom. And why I mean that is this. If you're guarding the gospel, it means you're pleasing God. You're not trying to please the people. Too many people are shepherding the people by pleasing them. We have to settle, as was said already this evening, we serve a king and we are to please God and we're guarding the gospel of the kingdom. Amen? It really needs to be a battle that there is blazing today in America. The church has lost its message. It's all about taking care of people rather than advancing the kingdom of God. And so I, I want to plead with you again, Mark and Kara, that you have responsibility first and foremost to guard the gospel of the kingdom, to seek first the kingdom, as we've already heard, and to, to understand that our message is not our message, it's His message. We don't have the right to change it. We don't have the right to dilute it and, 
and, and make it more attractive. It's good enough. Because we're stewards, God in the gospel, we preach His message all the time is what people need to hear first. And so the message, the mandate, friends, I want to tell you, and I say it unapologetic, that the church's mandate is the, is the world. Because God has called us to reach people, reach outward, the world. If the world is not our parish, and I don't believe we're living in what God's called the church, we've lost our mission. And so I want to say, when you're guarding the gospel, if our mission, if our focus is not the world, then we're not building according to the Word of God. Because the world is what God's called us to reach. So that is what we've got to fight for. We've got to guard. And our ministry is presence and power of God, friends. It's not clever words and trickery. It's power and demonstration of heaven here on earth. That's the message. That's the mandate that God's given us. And so firstly, just to say, God, the gospel of the kingdom. Please, God, before anyone. When you do that, people will walk in their inheritance. The second thing is obviously to gather. God, the gospel, but gather to be shepherds. And uh, in First Timothy chapter, four, uh, sorry, one Peter chapter five, it, it speaks about. It. Peter writes and he says this. Let me, let me quickly read it. it. Says to the elders among you, I appeal as fellow elders, a witness of Christ's suffering, who also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You know what that says to me? You might not see it all here on earth. In actual fact, you probably won't. But what I understand in this truth is this, and I was, I was challenging our elders this week. We're not going to see it all here on earth, but when the chief shepherd appears, he's going to honor us for what we did, how we led. We are under him, the great and true shepherd. Psalm 78 verse 72, David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. He led them. And I believe that's the call, is to be example, as we heard already this evening, to protect your people, to provide fresh revelation to encourage, to envision, to enlarge, to see people walking in a bigger inheritance, to pray for them. I don't know if we emphasize prayer enough. Praying for people is part of the mandate of shepherds. Is we pray for our people. We pray with them, but we also pray for them. And somebody said that talking to men for God is great, but talking to God for men is even greater. We like to talk to people on God's behalf, but talk to God on people's behalf is even greater as pastors. You know what it does? It sustains our love for people. When we pray for our people, we love our people. And we give an, Let me just say, as we bring you up in a moment, this, this I want to say. We serve her, the bride, but she's not our master. Alright? Just to say, all of you wonderful people who are part of this church, their job is to serve you, but you are not their boss. It's very difficult to live this out. Because if we're serving you, then you want to be our boss. The problem is, we serve you, but you're not the boss. He's the boss. So here's the thing for this couple. They're going to give an account to him for you. 
They're not going to give an account to you for him. We have an authority over the church, but we cannot lord it over the church. We're not lords. They have their one Lord, Jesus Christ. We fight the enemy, but we don't fight the church. We're to build them up. And lastly, we're to guide. And I think of an elder. I think of a person or a people who lead people, who gather people, shepherd them, who guard the gospel, but we lead them, we guide them. We lead them in the mission. And I believe that is the call of elders, is to lead God's people into the glorious inheritance to which God has called them. Leading, feeding, and loving the sheep is our responsibility. So that's what leadership is. That's the exciting thing. But it also involves not just a local church, but it involves honoring the other local churches in the region. I think too many guys are focused on their own church, building their own thing. Friends, I love that. You've already said there's a bunch of pastors here and a bunch of other churches. But friends, it's about the king and the kingdom. It's not about the church and how we're doing our thing. All right? And that has to be torn down in this great nation if the church is going to ever have an impact in this nation. It's turn aside of this competitiveness and again preach the king and the kingdom and we're all in this together. And so there has to be not just an honoring of what God's doing in my local church is I need to honor the other ministries, the other pastors, the other people in the city and beyond. That's what local church responsibility is all about. But also, friends, it involves the translocal, the apostolic, the going and the sending. Jesus isn't just about your local church right here. He's about the local churches partnering and working together. He's about us going to nations. You know that. I've already invited you and you've coming and you've already bought tickets and all. I don't even know if they know. But anyway, he's coming to the nation. Why? Because you have a responsibility as a local church, not just to your city, but to the nations of the earth. And if you're just about your local church, you're neglecting the call of God. So it's honoring what he's doing here. It's honoring the other, the other pastors, the other ministries and all that. But it's also honoring the great commission of we've been called to partner and take responsibility for the bigger cause that God has for us.